Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today we will be talking about the new Jonathan Levine comedy, Long Shot. Uh, I saw the film. We've we've both saw the film. Um, I saw it a little earlier than Adam and really liked it, and then I wrote my positive review. You can check that out on the site. Um, just a, a quick recap for those who don't know what Long Shot's about or haven't seen the trailer. Basically, Charlie's Throne is the Secretary of State who is planning to run for president, and Seth Rogen plays Fred Flarsky, who is a journalist who recently quit his job after his his paper was bought by a large conglomerate. And she used to to babysit for him when he was when they were kids and they reconnect and she needs a speechwriter and he needs a job. And so they sort of get together and it is very much like a rom-com and kind of the Dave uh, American president mold, but with kind of an R rated spin. And, and I and I quite enjoyed it. Um, Adam, what did you think about it? I liked it a lot, um, and I think it, you know it's not. This is an Avengers Endgame, but I think this is an interesting film to discuss, and then uh, to discuss kind of more broadly Seth Rogen's filmography because I yes. think he's taken a really interesting career track. Um, but this one's directed by Jonathan Levine, and I've liked his work a lot. But the trailers for this movie were not doing anything for me. Um, the first one, a little bit, but it was kind of it, it, it. You didn't really get a sense of like what exactly the movie was about, and it. You know, I finally saw it, and I was like, "Oh, it's a political romantic comedy, and they are hiding the politics of it," which is understandable. I imagine there there must be some polling that says that you know audiences are not into uh, political movies or entertainment at this point in time. Gosh, I can't imagine why. <laughs> yeah. I mean, The West Wing is my favorite TV show of all time, uh, but I have not rewatched it in years uh, for reasons that we'll go undiscussed. Uh, it's hard to watch now. I haven't uh, watched Bill's... West Wing or American President in uh, a little over two years. Well, and so that's what makes this movie so interesting is those those uh, I kind of have a romanticized, more traditional idea of politics. And, and um, however you feel about the state of politics today, you can't deny that they are different. Things forever changed. Um, just by nature of like not someone who is not a lifelong politician is in office. Uh, someone who was you know a TV star is now in office. Uh, and so this movie kind of it takes place in a reality where where that happens. And I think it gave them a little bit more leeway um, to kind of lean into some things. So the president in Longshot is played by Bob Odenkirk, and he played a president on television and was so popular that he got elected to be the real president, which now doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, it's not, I, you couldn't that as if you made that plot point 20 years ago, people would be like, no, that's too far fetched. Yeah. Now it's like, oh, yeah, you know, like it seems very much like, you know, the age of, uh, you know, uh Television, streaming, social media, kind of the the creation of the personality on profile online has, I think, led to this kind of um, uh, I don't know misunderstanding or blurring the lines of of real people and and fake people, um, people who play real people. Um, but in the in in long shot, like it's funny, but it's not played as like ridiculous or as you know kind of an Austin Powers like goof. It's just like a thing that happened. And Charlize Theron's uh, Secretary of State is a pretty traditional Secretary of State. Um, 
it's silly. There are definitely jokes to be had at the expense of, of uh, this idea that he's a TV actor in the White House. But it's interesting, and it, it, uh, I think it, it makes this movie all the more relevant, and that's kind of threaded throughout, but it's not the foreground. That's kind of the background. The foreground is this, uh, this romance that blossoms between uh, Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron's characters. And as you said, it's very much in that vein of Dave or the American president where it's this kind of romance that flourishes uh you know against the backdrop of kind of the behind the scenes look at politics and how things actually work in the political world um and what it's like to be dating when you are someone who is holding a seat of office um and i like that aspect of it a lot i found the movie very sweet uh it's super raunchy like it's very r-rated um but it also has a a really great heart to it which i think is a, a hallmark of most of jonathan levine's movies um if you if you're unaware, he shot uh, he directed uh, the Wackness, All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, Fifty Fifty, Warm Bodies, uh, the night before. And the last movie he directed was Snatched, which was not good. Uh, I was super bummed by that. Whereas I actually find Snatched to be kind of enjoyable. Do you? Um, My fiance likes it. I uh, thought it like I I liked it for what it was. I didn't think it was like any like groundbreaking comedy, but like as like a, a comedy with with Amy Schumer and uh, Goldie Hawn in the leads, like getting to be funny. Um, and also the Christopher Maloney scenes. <laughs> yes, me. That's true. Christopher Maloney and anything yeah. uh, is great. Um, but that one was his first that wasn't like a critical success. And so he's kind of coming back with long shot, which seems like people dig. Yeah. Um, you know, f- so I've seen it twice now. And the first time I was really taken with it. Um, and I do think it is sweet. I think it also has elements of pretty woman, which even the film acknowledges, um, and, uh, I, I also feel like it has, you have really strong chemistry between Seth Rogen and Charlie Theron. Um, but I, so I saw it a second time with my wife and she made a really good point and I want to get your thoughts on this. Sure. So basically one of the things I do like about the film is that when Fred comes into, uh, Charlotte, Charlie's. Theron's character and her orbit. It's not like, Oh, all of your writing is amazing. And now I've have a chance at the presidency. Like, it's not like, like he's, he's, they say he's a good writer, but it's not like he's a perfect writer. Who's like just what she's been missing. Yeah. And so basically where they're coming from as separate characters is he has kind of a chip on his shoulder. Um, he's just kind of a cynical guy. And she, because she's a woman in the public sphere, can't loosen up at all. But what's curious about the film is that her being more authentic, and this was my wife's observation, is that to be quote-unquote authentic means her being more like Fred instead of like a a woman unto herself. Like we know who Fred is, um, but we don't really know like who is Charlotte. If if Charlotte were not in the public eye, would she behave this way or is is she really like Fred or is it just easier to say she's like Fred. That's interesting. I think there's a bit of blowing off steam there that she does when Mm -hmm. she's with Fred. I mean, there's a, uh, as there is in almost every um, Seth Rogen produced movie, there is a drug sequence (laughs) um, where drugs are taken. Um, But I don't, 
I, I still feel like the, the film is pretty true to who she is. And he just kind of reminds her of how she was when she was a kid and how passionate she's been about this her whole life um, and kind of sticking true to her values. I don't want to spoil the ending, but I do. I was very happy with how the film ended. It did not end in a way in which she um, uh, it didn't end in a way where she's forced to kind of um, uh, give up the things that she cares about just to be with him, um, which I was, uh, I was happy with. And I like the idea that it's a bit of a, a uh, kind of a, a gender reversal because traditionally it's the man who's the person in power who, you know, um, has a fling with this girl who changes his life. So I think there's that aspect of it as well. Um, I don't think, I don't think it's wrong to say that she becomes a little bit more like Fred, but that's kind of how the rom-coms go when the genders are flipped. You know, the guy, um, the girl changes the guy's life. You know, he's, you know, Mr. Business on Wall Street and also uptight. And, you know, Manic Pixie Dream Girl comes in and he takes a road trip to Elizabethtown. Um, so <laughs> things like that tend to happen. So I think there was a little bit of that aspect of it, but I think it was all in, in service of kind of upending those tropes or gender flipping those tropes. Yeah, I get – I can see where you're coming from in terms of the gender flip. Um, it's just tricky because you want to say like she is – Charlotte is a strong, like, you know, very confident, knowledgeable woman. But the way she cuts loose is to be like more like the man in her life. But again, I get – I totally get where you're coming from. Like the, the way like, you know, the manic pixie dream girl. And that's the thing. These tropes are very tricky, partially because they're tropes and what do they say about the characters and – we also have to acknowledge that like rom-coms are fantasies. Like it, I, I, when I, I saw long shot before I saw Avengers Endgame, and I'm like, this is a bigger fantasy than Avengers Endgame. <laughs> I haven't even seen Endgame yet. And I know this is a bigger fantasy than Avengers yeah. Endgame. And it is, but <laughs> like, that's okay. Like there's nothing wrong with rom-coms being fantasies, but it's sort of, you kind of have to, to juggle things because it ostensibly takes place in reality. Well, and I think there's an aspect of um, – it's definitely a fantasy, um, but I think I think the film also does well to show that Fred is not uh, – he's not perfect. Like he's not the great guy, and she calls him on his bullshit, and I don't want to spoil it either, but he has a really great relationship with O'Shea Jackson, a character played by O'Shea Jackson Jr. in this movie, and there's a really great twist to that relationship that um, – has a lot to say about the political world we live in today and i think it's that is kind of value judgment on fred of where that goes and um you know what uh what fred kind of says and does uh later on in the film and i think that charlotte rightly calls him out on that and o'shea jackson jr's character rightly calls him out on that so the film doesn't posit that fred is uh you know kind of the the ideal man no not at all and i also i also give the film credit for not being that that Fred is not the moral truth of this film, that he is no. not its moral center and that, you know, you should follow, you know, Fred is always right. I definitely think that there's the, the film is attuned enough to be like, this is a flawed guy. Even when he's quitting his job at the beginning of the movie, like his uh, his paper gets it'd be the equivalent of like uh, like Vice gets bought by like Fox Corp, uh, like Fox News's owner. Or something smaller, a little smaller than Vice. Yeah, a little smaller. And founded by less shitty people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But like the, you know, his boss, you know, he's like, I'm quitting. We should all quit. And his boss is like, you're an idiot. Like, you don't have a job lined up. Um, 
I mean, it's not to say that uh, Fred's not morally wrong in that point, but it's kind of just kind of like he's being a little bit petulant in terms of and a little bit impulsive in terms of uh, what he's doing and what he's saying. It's very funny, though. Yeah, no, I definitely like how the film sort of posits his stubbornness, not as a honorable masculine sort of yes he is the true true north of the world but people getting kind of fed up with his shit Mm -hmm. and that and it's not that the film is like you should give up what you believe in but rather you know you it's it's a it's really easy to just quit and throw up your hands and be like i want nothing to do with this but it's harder to be like how do you navigate this world yeah yeah it's easy for him to be like, I'm better than everyone else, and thus I want no part of this. And then it's like, well, I can't pay my rent. Right, exactly. So, um, it's funny. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know Seth Rogen has a really you know good thing going on, and I, and I'm not just to. I want to take actually an aside to just be like, and I, I mentioned this in my review that I am just very impressed with Charlie's Theron, and just she, I think she is one of the most consistent actresses we've had this century so far oh yeah i mean it's really incredible the range she has and it's not like oh she's new to comedy because like her stint on arrested development is still one of the funniest things that happened on that show (laughs) (laughs) and a little like that season is kind of has hallmarks of what was to come where it was like oh yeah we probably should have known it it was not going to be all great going down yeah but she is great on Arrested Development, and <laughs> you're, I mean, you're just thinking of it now and it's laughing. It's just so stupid and wrong. <laughs> it is it's funny, but it's really funny. Um, but I mean, but also like she's done like serious drama, and she's an Oscar winner, and um, so I'm. I, I think that you know, I think Rogan is being kind of who we expect Rogan to be, and that's not to diminish what he does. But also, I think that he has a really good partner here in in Theron. Yeah, and I think it's uh, Theron recently revealed that she was offered the role of Wonder Woman's mom in Wonder Woman, Ooh. and it, it kind of was kind of taken back by it. Uh, and it's curious to note that, like, shortly after that, she went and starred in Atomic Blonde, her own action movie. And this is fucking Furiosa we're talking about. So, like. God, the range that she has. And then she, you know, she won an Oscar for Monster, which is uh, another completely different and transformative performance. There's really very little that she can do. Um, And I still haven't seen Tully yet, but I've heard that she's great at Tully. Tully is one of my favorite performances from her. Interesting. It's because she is playing just another dramatic dimension that we've never really seen from her before. And... I mean, my my experience of seeing Tully is I saw it, I was surrounded by women and people were just like, yep, that's so true. That's so true, like about motherhood. And like, so she she spoke to that honestly in her performance, like just that exhaustion and that and the expectations that people have of mothers. How do you feel about her reaction to Neil Patrick Harris when he shit in a hat in A Million Ways to Die in West? <laughs> I think everything about that scene is perfect, and I've been on record saying that. <laughs> Matt Goldberg is a defender of the Seth MacFarlane Western classic. I don't know if the, the whole Western, but that scene <laughs> where Neil Patrick Harris shits in three hats. Three hats. Is, is my kind of comedy. <laughs> but yes, uh, Shelley's Theron is a national treasure. Um, and it, I mean, I'm very curious to see, you know, what, 
she i mean she's playing megan kelly again later this year so she's switching back to drama um she's just so versatile as you said yeah so what would you you know rogan is he's had a really interesting career because you know he started off as just kind of this supporting comic force uh with apatow and like he's sort of if you want to look at like the branch of the apatow tree like rogan is clearly there yeah um there is no seth rogan without judd apatow and i think Rogan would probably be like the first to, to admit that. But I think Rogan has kind of done his own thing, especially with his producing and writing partner, Evan Goldberg. Yeah. And trying to sort of forge their own path. And they've taken it in some really interesting directions. I mean, they, you know, with uh, not just comedies, but like comedies that are kind of, I don't want to say, I don't, they go against I think pigeonholing them. Like they don't make just bro comedies. Like they make, and I don't think that they're bro. Like I don't, and I don't, and usually I use bro in the derogatory sense. I don't, I I don't think that they've made just like knocked up movies. I'll put it that way. Like they didn't make just like Seth Rogen's the lovable schlub who, you know, gets the girl in the, like, I think that they've like the fact that they like, they make sausage party and then they produce, you know, preacher. Like it's really interesting to see the sort of diversity in their career. Yeah, I think there's two there's two ways of looking at Seth Rogen's career because I think going back to Freaks and Geeks and uh, you know most of those actors have said this that Jed Apatow pulled specifically Seth Rogen and Jason Segel aside and said, "Listen, you guys aren't leading men. You're going to have to write your own material. Material. Let me teach you how to write scripts." And I, uh, you know Siegel famously went on to write Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which is amazing and still holds up really well. And I think Rogan really took that to heart, and he and Evan Goldberg wrote Superbad, which was their first movie that was produced. And that movie is still, I think, a classic. I mean the, the, the comedy of it may be a bit problematic in hindsight. I haven't rewatched it in a while. Um, but the, the friendship and the feeling of abandonment of, you know, your best friend in high school going to a different college than you, I think it gets that relationship really well. And that kind of heart that's in the, the script for Superbad is something that's prevalent in all of the films that he's written, um, with Evan Goldberg and, and that they've made, um, even going through to the, the neighbors movies, which, uh, which I, I like a lot. And, um, I think, I know he co-wrote Neighbors 2. I'm not sure if he has a writing credit on the first Neighbors because I know they that was an existing script that they took and then reworked. Um, but there's there's some really welcome um, – it, it seems like with, with the material specifically that Rogan and Goldberg are producing and writing, there's always some kind of angle to each of it. Like Neighbors 2 has kind of a feminist angle and, it, and it's, it's kind of turning the tables and, and seeing like, okay, what do the double standards look like in college for men and women? Um, and then you look at something like Preacher, and they're they're really kind of taking on religion and trying to adapt this comic in a way that comes off as somewhat realistic. Um, in your mileage may vary on that. That's a show I checked out of. Uh, my uh, my issue with Preacher, and I think it's also going to be an issue I have with the boys, is that that those are both based on comics by Garth Ennis, who is just like he's a celebrated comic writer and preacher is an acclaimed series. And I think the boys has, certainly has its fans as well, but I find his stuff so knowingly vulgar, like vulgar for the sake of vulgarity uh, um, yeah. that I find it really off putting. And I find like, to me that was like with preacher. I'm just like, I just, I don't have the patience for this. Yeah. So as a TV show in comic book form, it worked a little better, but even preacher eventually as a comic, I think started going off the rails near the end. 
So sure. As directors, I think the thing that that remains my favorite of theirs is this is the end. Yeah, uh, I would which agree is with kind that. of a it's kind of a high wire act uh, in terms of trying to toe that line. But it's so funny and it's so silly, but it also really treats that relationship between Seth and James Franco um, with a lot of heart and honesty. James uh, Franco or Jay Baruchel? Oh, Jay Baruchel, yeah. Well, and Franco. <laughs> and Franco, but Franco doesn't, doesn't fare so well. <laughs> All of the paintings in his house of Seth. <laughs> oh, and it's just filled with so many genius things like the Pineapple Express sequel that they never made. Um uh, and then Michael Sarah just being the worst fucking person in the world. <laughs> uh, that movie holds up. Um, but uh, yeah, this is the end it is still kind of my favorite thing. I think the interview is okay. I think. Yeah. The interview I feel is like, it is honestly more interesting for the story that surrounded it. Yeah. Then the, fil- yeah, the I, film itself kind of starts running on fumes. Although I think Randall Park kind of steals it as, as Kim Jong-un. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um but yeah, that film has its moments, but the, the whole Sony hack and every, like, you know, we can't show it or you know, it was that, that to me f- became much bigger than the film itself. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Um, and then in terms of an, of an actor, I think he's had a really interesting career path. Um, you know, obviously 40 year old version, uh, is the thing that kind of sold him as a scene stealer and then knocked up, um, but even back in – so 2008 was Pineapple Express, which uh, was kind of the big co-starring role with James Franco, which also holds up remarkably well. Um, but the year after that, he did Observe and Report, which is a really ballsy movie to do. It's a really ballsy character to play because it's a, it's essentially you're doing Travis Bickle in a comedy. Um, but he's kind of despicable and he's really unlikable and really just weird and gross and he doesn't ever really get redemption it's just kind of his story uh and the fact that he was really like eager to play into that and play with that i thought i thought uh kind of spoke volumes yeah it's a really impressive uh turn from him it's a career ending performance from all for a lot of people but the fact that he was like yeah no i'm up for it let's do it no it was really brave and i think he kind of had enough sense of himself and sort of his uh his presence as an actor but also i think that one of the things is that I think with Rogan, he's like, yes, I can. So that year an observer report, but he was also in funny people. So he's still with Judd Apatow. I think he yeah. has a sense of like being in demand enough that I think it's sort of, it was a confident move. He's yeah. like, I am still going to get work. I can write my own movies. I have a funny voice. I have comic timing. People are going to want me. So I have the freedom to be like, yes, I can still do comedies. But if I also want to do, you know, two years later, he does take this waltz and 50, 50, you know, again, he is not shying away from dramatic material. Yeah. Well, in that same year, the green Hornet came out, which I still have not seen. (laughs) It's, it's pretty bad. It's, it is a film that I think, you know, that what, what Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg said about it was sort of kind of a mo money, mo problems thing where because the film cost a lot of money and it was a film that they had been working really hard to get made for a while. Like there was a point when Stephen Chow was going to direct and co-star and then oh, he dropped right. out and then they had to sort of convince the studio. I remember Rogen saying like when they were trying to convince the studio to hire Michelle Gondry that he wouldn't make all the sets out of cardboard, you know, <laughs> like it was sort of a fight. 
And at the end of the day, Sony was just sort of didn't give them the freedom to make the movie they wanted. And you get a very forgettable film as a result. Yeah. Yeah, I still haven't seen it. It seems like Rogan and Goldberg have not disowned it, but have been like, yeah, that was a misstep and we learned our lesson. Yeah. Um, But, you know, uh, the performance of his that I really like, uh, aside from Dirty Randy on The League. (laughs) (laughs) Dirty Randy and the boys. Uh, That's Dirty Mike and the boys. This is Dirty Randy and Rafi. um, Which, by the way, whenever they did those single, like, standalone episodes, they would just let Rogan and Mansukas write those. (laughs) So. Which is smart, <laughs> which is very yes. smart. Yes. Um, I really like his I, – I felt he was kind of robbed of an Oscar nomination for Jobs. I agree. I you mean thought, Steve Jobs. Jobs is the Ashton Kutcher one. Well, everyone was robbed of an Oscar nomination for Jobs. <laughs> but yeah, Steve Jobs for his performance of uh, Steve Wozniak I yeah. thought was – I think he is the heart of that movie. And I really feel he should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actor for it. Oh, I I completely agree, and I'm a huge fan of that movie. I was really bummed um, by how it performed and how everyone just kind of pretended like it didn't exist when the awards rolled around. Um, Because I think that's another high-wire act in terms of structure, uh, and I liked the way that Danny Boyle directed it. Obviously, probably would have been a little bit better with Fincher, but um, uh, I agree. I think Rogan's performance in that movie is really terrific, uh, and his interplay with Fassbender is uh, kind of pitch-perfect. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is what I think what Rogan kind of realizes is like Hollywood history is littered with like, you know, adorable funny men who never really get to do more than that. Or like you'll get to be a character actor. And he is someone who's very much like I want to be in control of my destiny here. Mm -hmm. Um, And whether that means I'm going to star, I'm going to take acting roles that are outside, you know, that that play against type or might be unusual, but I'm also going to write my own stuff and produce my own stuff so that I'm always working and always creating and sort of staying in control of that. Yeah. Yeah, I know for sure. Um, and uh, I mean, he's got some interesting stuff coming up. He's getting back with Sorkin for Trial of Chicago 7. Um, so I'm curious to see how that pans out. Yeah, I, I'm bummed that Newsflash fell apart. <laughs> yeah, same. And Zeroville is apparently in a can somewhere. I think it's supposed to come out this year and being released by like a nothing studio. Makes sense. By like a new streaming service that no one's heard of. And they're like, we have Zeroville. I'm like, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. Um, what, how do you feel about the night before? Did you see the night before? I did see the night before and it didn't work as well for me as I had hoped. Um, you know, I, I went into it being like, oh yeah, like this is like, I, you know, Christmas, an R rated Christmas comedy with, with, with Seth Rogen and, and Anthony Mackie and, you know, oh, and, and there's Michael Shannon. Like, I, I mean, it's it felt like a film that should have worked better for me than it did. I didn't hate it, but it never it, it quickly kind of like faded from memory. But I know you're a big fan of it. I am. Yeah. And I well, I didn't catch up on it until it was on TV. So maybe that's um, part of the reason I didn't leave my house for it. Um but I feel like it's a, it's one of those that I, I want to watch every Christmas. Uh, it's just kind of a fun um Really just like comedy first Christmas movie, but it also looks great. It was shot by Brandon Trost, a uh, cinematographer who also did Can You Ever Forgive Me, who I think is making his directorial debut with a Seth Rogen movie where he plays like a pickle. Yes. Like a guy, a guy that got pickled or something like that. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's about a guy who, who is preserved for 100 years and wakes up in modern day Brooklyn and he plays against himself. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I'm a big fan of the night before. 
Yeah, I, 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 it's a film I feel like I should revisit. Um, because I like most of Jonathan Levine stuff. Yeah. It's uh, solid. It's solid. And so, and so is Longshot. I, I highly encourage people to, to see Longshot. Yeah. Yeah. I was pleasantly surprised again. I think the marketing was a little off for it. It obviously didn't do great at the box office. I mean, coming out after Endgame is a little tough. Um, Although I don't know why they put a Seth Rogen. I mean, even though it is a romantic comedy, and maybe they thought like the the true intended audience of it, um, which would be largely female, I think would dig it. Uh, my fiance really really liked it, but uh, putting that close to Avengers Endgame, I think, was a mistake. Yeah, it feels like a bit of counter programming that is not sm- that's that Lionsgate doesn't really know what they have. Like they're yeah. kind of they're kind of hoping like oh well you know if you've seen Avengers Endgame like maybe you'll come see this for a nice date night and I'm like no they'll just go see Endgame again like <laughs> it's it's not the best place for it they probably should have released it like in April when, when, yeah. April by the way was super slow this year it would yeah. probably would have done a lot better in April yeah there was like nothing yeah exactly so yeah what are you gonna do release it opposite Aladdin no one's gonna see Aladdin <laughs> famous last words. Um, <laughs> Never bet against Disney, but I get very strong solo vibes from this. Oh, I don't think it's gonna like. Yeah, I don't think it's. Gonna, I don't think Aladdin's gonna be massive, but I do think it'll be a hit. Yeah, kind of. Um, we'll see. We'll see. Um, all right. Anything else to say about Longshot, or do we or, or do we want to move into to recently watched? Uh, just see it. I highly recommend checking it out. I think you'll dig it. Uh, take a date. It's a pretty good date movie. I think. I mean, again, it's very R-rated, so uh, there there are plot points that hinge on very R-rated things. So, so if you, if you're not okay with R-rated things, I don't know why you're listening <laughs> like to this podcast. R-rated. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Uh, okay. All right. So, recently watched. What have you seen lately? Uh, not a ton, but I did want to talk a little bit about the final season of Veep, which I've been watching, um, and I love Veep. Uh, it's one of my favorite comedies of the last few years. This final season's a little rough. Um, I mean, uh, famously, David Mandel took over for showrunner Armando Iannucci when he went off to go make The Death of Stalin. Uh, David Mandel is a kind of a veteran Seinfeld writer, which I guess HBO just has like a stable of Seinfeld writers that they call out whenever they need help with things. Alec Berg uh, came out to do Silicon Valley, and then he went on to help with Barry. And then they called up David or uh, David Mandel to come and uh, work on Veep. And the first couple seasons David Mandel ran were were solid. They were very good. It didn't feel like it missed a beat. Um, this season just feels like extremely mean to me. Uh, and this is a show that's very mean, and I'm I'm not very easily offended. But it's it's just so mean <laughs> that it's sometimes a little harder to watch. Uh, it's still very funny. Julia Louis-Dreyfus is still the best. Um, and Sam Richardson is still a highlight as Richard Splett, uh, who's one of the great TV characters of the last five years. Um, but yeah, it's, I've been a little, a little bummed that I, I haven't been digging this final season as much as I dug, um, the previous seasons, but, uh, still thankful that the show exists and, uh, thankful that they get to go out on their own terms and curious to see where they wrap things up. But, uh, I don't know. I have a feeling that the the Trump of it all um, maybe finally caught up to them, and they they went a little they went a little off. I mean, the show was always a little bit outlandish and a little um, and very mean, but this season it almost feels like it's getting a little too Seinfeldy. You know, like those latter Seinfeld seasons where they had like Bizarro Jerry and 
just it got a it little becomes bit. it becomes very conscious about structure and you know and, and yeah and, and kind a of self aware a little fantastical yeah yeah so but there's a little bit of that where it's kind of like oh this is this is getting pretty heightened here hmm. so but it's still solid so you know you say veteran Seinfeld writers I say veteran Euro trip. Writers, so. <laughs> yeah, I for I always forget that that was essentially just like the core Seinfeld writing team got together and made a movie, With, and, and it's is, a movie that's really good. <laughs> I like haven't you seen it in forever. People like it's, it's weird. Like you tell me, like Euro Trip is like that teen comedy from two thousand from the early two thousands. That that's really good, and it is. It's really good. It's really funny. Well, because it was positioned know. as it was positioned as like a spinoff of Road Trip, right? Yeah, it was something like yeah, it was kind of like trying to coast, even though it had no. Really, I don't think any of the same people involved. It was trying to coast off road trip. They're like, oh, Euro trip. And people, I think, were confused about what it was. But it's, I mean, it is a teen sex comedy, but it's done very well. Yeah. Road trip, I remember that was Tom Green and Brecken Meyer and Amy Smart, right? Yeah. That, uh, it's, um, what's his face? It's uh, Todd Phillips. Todd Phillips? Oh, that's right. That's Todd Phillips. Right. Yeah. yeah. That was back when Brecken Meyer was like a comedy star. I remember Rat Race just cracking my shit up. <laughs> Rat Race is still quite funny. Rat Race is very funny. The gag, the gag with the Hitler <laughs> and the World War II veterans. Is, John, John Lovitz is so good in that movie. It's a silly movie, but it is. Uh, well, I mean, it's but, a remake of it. it's a Mad, 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 Mad World. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, okay. So for me, uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you know that I spent last Saturday watching all the Star Wars prequels with my wife. Um, and, and I won't, I won't say too much because we are planning to, in two weeks, we are going to have an episode for the 20th anniversary of Star Wars episode one, the Phantom Menace. But I will say, so I, I genuinely thought I would like the movies more. (laughs) I'm not going (laughs) to trash them right now. I'm not going to do that. I do think you should listen to the episode because I think we're going we're gonna to dig into the nuances of, of, of episode one. Um, but I will say, I thought, I went in, I'm like, oh, you know what it was? Oh, I bet because, you know, when you saw it in 1999, like the hype was so big and then the backlash was so severe and I just got swept up in it. And now I can finally judge these prequels on their own terms, removed from anything. I bet... I bet if I sit down, they may not be great movies, but I bet they're interesting. No. <laughs> no, they're not. They're just bad films. The most interesting about interesting thing about them is how they are each bad in their own way. They're it's not like there's a single problem that that affects all of them. They're each bad in their own way. Um yeah. I haven't done my rewatch yet, so I am prepared to do battle. You, oof. I, I mean, I have, <laughs> I got the, I found the Blu-ray set was on sale. So I bought the Blu-ray set and I'm like, I'm going to watch all three. And they're just, they're not well-made movies. And it really raises the, I, I, and, and I find it, it's interesting. Like on the one hand, I think fandom really directed hate at the wrong people. Like you should not hold a grudge against Uh, Ahmed Best or Jake Lloyd. Like, they didn't do shit to you. They're actors. They didn't write the script. They are just actors, you know? So, like, because you didn't like young Anakin or Jar Jar Binks, that has nothing to do... There is no one who could have made those characters work. There is not an act... Daniel Day-Lewis could not make Jar Jar Binks an effective character. (laughs) Although, it's fun to imagine. 
It's fun to imagine. What if? But the it's weird, like recently, like the marketing and the press for like episode nine, J- you know, JJ Abrams is like, we went to George, you know, we, you know, we wanted to get George's ideas. And I'm like, why? <laughs> why would you do that? Because <laughs> George Lucas, first off, what you have to know about the original trilogy is that George Lucas left of his own devices would have made Luke Starkiller and the Kyber Crystals. George Lucas did not do those movies on his own. He had a lot of help. He had a lot of feedback from his fellow writers and producers. Mm-hmm. Those films were were a group effort. And that's not to take away what Lucas brought to the table, but it was not a one-man show. Second, if you've seen the prequels, you would be like, I don't think this guy has a lot of ideas left. And I just don't... It, it kind of... Like, I feel like George Lucas has been redeemed in some way. Like Like, people have forgiven him. And like... Again, you shouldn't hate George Lucas because he made movies you didn't like. You shouldn't. I mean, you know, that's whatever. But that being said, you don't need to go to him as if he's like a fountain of wisdom. So on Star Wars anyway, it's just it's (laughs) weird. You go back and watch these prequels and there's just such a weird thing about them. Like there there are these movies that I feel now are intended to be forgotten. Like I don't think any like Disney doesn't want to touch them. No one wants to be like, oh, let's. Let's not talk about them, but I'm very excited to talk about them in detail, and we're going to do that in two weeks. I am also very excited to rewatch them and talk about them. Yes. We um, shall see. We shall see. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you next time.